Psychology in Seattle. Hello and welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. It's just me today. I am doing chapter four of responding to everyone's emails that I have been acquiring over a long period of time, maybe years. And so it's spring and I'm trying to clean out the closet and actually answer everyone's emails. So let's get into it. Anonymous patron wrote in asking me to talk about stigma against social anxiety. They write, as you likely know and agree, mental illness stigma is still an overwhelming issue in society with some improvements recently. But for the most part, I would argue that most people really still don't give a shit. I suspect that there's a lot of talking and not a lot of walking. A big part of the problem is that everyone has experienced social anxiety to some extent, so they assume that they get it and that other people should be able to navigate it just like they have. As someone who has experienced social anxiety and as someone who has recently begun graduate training to be a clinician, I have been on both sides of the the anxiety fence, so to speak. When I notice that someone is feeling anxious in a social setting, I just do my best to speak with them like they're on the same level as me. Most socially anxious people are just looking to feel normal, but I'm not sure many people understand this. I found it discouraging to at times to be person to at times be personally experiencing the stigma in graduate school in the way other trainees and professionals talk about anxious clients. The stigma can be very subtle. I had to just get this off my chest. I'm probably coming off across super jaded, but this has been my experience. I'd like to hear what you've observed in terms of how people behave towards anxious people in social settings. End of email. Yeah, stigma, it's awful. It's really ridiculous. I mean, there's a lot of things in our society that you know, as podcast listeners, I will rant and rage about, and this is one of them. It's so dumb. Everyone, you know, something like half of at least Americans at some point in their life will call it qualify for a full-blown DSM diagnosis. And everyone is on some spectrum of a diagnosis in the DSM, if not several. So this idea that it's stigmatized and somehow like there's us and then there's the mentally ill is just really inaccurate. It's akin to saying like, um, I mean, even if you just take, again, those people who actually qualify for where they actually cross the threshold into mental illness, you're talking about one out of every two people. So what other are you talking about? Um, And again, like I said, I would, I'm here to tell you my opinion is that a hundred percent of people are very close to a threshold of one or another kind in the DSM. So it's, it's really awful. And, and, you know, we all know intellectually that the stigma is silly, and yet our society just keeps going along with it. And there's so many manifestations of this. Most importantly, in my mind, is this complete lack of political dollars and attention spent on mental illness. And let me define mental illness. What I'm talking about is mental well-being. People going through divorce, with a, going through a lot of emotional um, difficulty, and we don't have any, um, we don't have hardly any effort in our society to actually help people with this. And I'm not talking about just like patting them on the back. I'm actually talking about concrete help 
So not only is it the moral thing to actually help those people, but, and I hate to always do this because this is what people always do, is you have to bring it into some sort of dollars and cents, right? Our economy would be 50% better if we had better mental health and therapeutic services for people. Think of all the people out there right now who are currently under, under, you know, employed or are having difficulties at work concentrating or are committing crimes or are parenting their kids poorly because they are not hooked up with an easy, accessible clinician who is the right person for them. It's, I, I would say we would be 500 million percent more effective as an economy if we had such a thing. It, it, so not only dollars and cents, but it's the moral thing to do. I mean, it, even more extreme examples where you have people who are – I was actually talking with this guy last night, and he's a professional – security guy for stalkers like people people will call him and say i have a stalker and he is a guy who like takes care of that and i i was like oh that sounds really interesting like you know in my head i'm thinking oh he's got like night vision glasses and he's you know got a gun and he's running around trying to catch the stalkers and he's like no actually what i do is I try to figure out what mental illness the person has because stalkers are usually suffering from some sort of mental illness. And then I usually, and then I'm like, oh, okay, well then what do you do? He's like, well, then I reach out to the stalker's family and I say, hey, you know, I, I didn't, I don't know if you know this, but your brother who is 35 years old has been stalking one of my clients. And I just, you know, wanted you to maybe know that. So maybe we could work as a team to try to help your brother out so that he gets the treatment that he needs needs and all that kind of stuff. So now this is a very expensive um, service, by the way. The only very rich people can afford such a service. The, everyone else just has to deal with the stalker, right? And what he's telling me is like, the police won't do anything because the stalker hasn't committed any crime yet. You can get restraining orders and whatnot. But aside from that, like, um, you can't really do anything if you're a victim of being stalked. So, um, so there's just this kind of weird zone and what a wonderful zone we could fill with clinicians. And so the reason why we're not dedicating the money to that and the time is because we're still in the dark ages regarding stigma. We still consider mental illness to be this like crazy wackadoo thing that's in the dark tunnels of an insane asylum or something. And it's like, no, we are all mentally ill. <laughs> Shouldn't we all have some kind of allocation of resources to help all of ourselves out. I mean, at the very least, someone you know is suffering from something. So it's just really silly. And you'll have people, even today, I'm not so much in Seattle because Seattle's pretty progressive, but you know, just outside Seattle, people will be like, well, I'm not going to go to therapy. I'm not crazy. You know, it the the barrier, the the and I'm guessing no one listening to this podcast is like that, but all you got to do listeners out there is think about like 10 people that, you know, I'm guessing at least five of them have some extremely backward ideas about what therapy is and what it's supposed to be for and that they would never go to therapy in a million years. And it's like, I'm here to tell you, everyone, y'all need to be in therapy, including you clinicians, by the way, especially you clinicians. So it's important. Now talking about social anxiety specifically is Social anxiety is extremely debilitating. When you when you actually cross the threshold into the disorder in the DSM, 
it is extremely debilitating. There is so much suffering. It's not just being shy. It's completely crippling and can be just a lifetime of horrific suffering. It can even rise to the level of delusion. It often doesn't, but it's not just like being a little shy. You know, we often as clinicians will use that label like, well, I have this kiddo who's a little socially anxious and that's fine. You can do that. But we don't want to confuse that with the disorder because the disorder is really quite something severe. All right. So anonymous patron, you're asking me what I have seen. Well, yeah, this is just me and my observations. The thing I'll do is I'll just look at myself first off is I don't have social anxiety. I have the regular amount. I don't have social anxiety disorder, I should say. I have the regular amount of social anxiety, but on the scale of things, I'm probably not very socially anxious. Um, I've definitely had insecure moments that I can point to, particularly earlier in my life. But for the most part, I'm, I'm, I don't, that's not, I have other problems. That's not one of them. And I'll tell you that of the insecurities that I have socially, they've mostly evaporated as I've gotten older. It's weird how I can look back even just five years and think like, oh, I used to have, I used to be worried about um, being, you know, if I'm in a meeting of 40 people, like a professional meeting, and I'm sitting around a round table with, you know, 30 other people, and I don't know most of them, and I'm supposed to introduce myself. Five years ago, I'd get a little bit of a, you know, a heart beating fast kind of, you know, sweaty palm kind of situation. And today I don't at all. And, you know, 10 years ago, I had, you know, a whole bunch of other things and 20 years ago. So I don't know. I'm just saying it's just sort of an interesting uh, benefit to um, slowly crawling your way to death. Um, The other thing is, is that I've absolutely internalized all the messages from our society, both good and bad, including stigma against socially anxious people. So I just have to acknowledge that, that we all have internalized society's messages and we've all internalized um, mental illness stigma and we can never get away from that. In the same way that I can never get away from or deny my um, racism against black people, I've internalized that. It's not a matter of ridding myself of that. I can't graduate from that. I have to manage it. I have to do what I can to... um, make black people more human to me, which I've done over 30 years. I have to um, challenge my cognitions. I have to um, challenge my privilege. I have to do all that kind of stuff. But I'm never going to get rid of the visceral feeling, that very slight feeling that's still there that was incurred from a lifetime and continues to live. I continue to internalize. That's the other thing. Like, Even if you manage to... like do a lot of really good work in destigmatizing something or changing the, your viewpoint on something, you still live in the soup of our society and will still constantly get messages to the contrary of what you're hoping to believe. So anyway, my point is, is that I've, I've internalized mental illness stigma, stigma and it'll come up sometimes. And I just have to, we just all just have to acknowledge that. But in terms of my observations, I would say there's a lot in society with regards to uh, social anxiety I, I see people saying things like, oh, you know, kids today, they just play their video games and so they're all socially anxious. You'll, you'll hear things like that. And although certainly for some people that might be the issue, but, you know, social anxiety disorder is not because you played video games. It's something quite deeper. 
Or people will say, oh, you know, victim mentality. This is a conservative point of view often. They'll say like, oh, you know, everyone's playing the victim. Social anxiety disorder. It's like, in my day, we just called it shyness and we overcame it, you know, and it's like, ugh. Or people will say something like, oh, it's, it's a, you know, she's, all, she's always up in her head. She's always thinking too much. She needs to stop thinking too much. It's blaming the person with the disorder. Other people will just be like, you know, you just got to get out there. You just got to get out there. You know, start, get on Tinder, you know, join a, join a book club. And, you know, to anyone with social anxiety disorder, I'm sure you've heard such things. And you just know that that's just stupid. I mean, it's like you're depressed and you suffer from major depression and you have for 15 years. And someone says, like, you just need to look on the bright side. It's like, fuck you. Now, what do I see in clinicians? Well, what I see in clinicians are most clinicians who don't understand social anxiety disorder, and most don't really, is they have extremely simplistic, quote unquote, treatment plans that involve skill building. You know, someone will come in with social anxiety disorder and they'll develop a treatment plan that is essentially like listening to them, um, listening to the client complain about various different things, which is fine. That's a good part of therapy. But then when they're treating the social anxiety disorder, they're just like, okay, um, how can, you know, deep breaths exercises and how to um, think differently, you know, just basically simplistic cognitive behavioral therapy. And yeah, that's what I've seen. And I think that's a result of stigma and a result of complete misunderstanding of what the disorder is actually like. What social anxiety disorder needs, in my experience, is a very lengthy assessment. You can't just take, you can't just ask someone, okay, what's wrong? And they're like, oh, I have social anxiety disorder, and ask them, ask them a couple of questions and, and really understand what's going on. You have to understand the history. You have to understand their attachments. You have to understand their traumas, their relational traumas. Were they bullied? Were they made fun of? I'm sure they've had a, a you know, millions of really horrific social experiences, either self-induced or otherwise, that have compounded their fear of um, opening up and, and interacting with other people. So you, you need to assess all that stuff. You also need to work with a team because it, at least with the family because, or friends or somebody or spouse, because that's just good therapy. Also, you have to involve, I mean, skills are fine. You can do skills, but really it has to do mostly with exposure. Any anxiety, you have to use exposure, meaning that with someone, so let's say someone came to me and they just had like pure social anxiety disorder and they didn't really have any other issue that was compounding it like PTSD or or attachment uh, insecurity or anything. Well, what I'd be doing with them is I would be taking them uh, I would be working, you know, I would say the following, I'd, this is my little speech. I'd say, okay, so I've, I've assessed that your issue is that you have social anxiety disorder, which is a somewhat common disorder that affects a lot of people. And the evidence shows that the way we can actually cure you of your anxiety is by slowly habituating by uh, your brain, by slowly getting your brain used to socializing with other people and the consequences of making mistakes socially. And what this involves is we will slowly introduce, you know, tolerable for the most part, but a little bit anxiety provoking 
social inter- interactions and having you sustain them for long enough for your body to get used to it. I'm never going to ask you to do anything that's too fast or, or too overwhelming. And, and you'll, you will always be in charge of this. And, and I actually don't want to go at a fast pace. I want to go, I'm actually going to advocate always for the slow pace and you might get a little impatient. For example, once you're ready and, and not this week, cause we have to talk about this for a number of weeks before you even start to go down this road. Cause I, I want to be confident that you know what you're getting into is you will learn how to um, regulate your emotions. You'll learn how to notice your emotions. You'll learn how to uh, reduce your stress. And you might have some skills right now, but we're gonna have, we're gonna beef those up. We're gonna make them better. And then once you get those down, then you're you're gonna start a program where in between every session you're gonna do something that's that's gonna be a little bit challenging. Like, you know, and I might say. In order to avoid freaking you out right now, I'm going to talk about a different sort of exposure. Like let's say someone was afraid of needles and uh, in the doctor's office and they just they really want to get a vaccine, but they're terrified of getting a vaccine because of the needles. And so the exposure to that would be that in office, I would talk about a needle um, and we would have the client, I would have the client visualize needles just just the needle, not actually going in the arm, just visualize the doctor holding a needle and think about that for about 20 minutes, really focus on it. And we will monitor your distress. And hopefully by the end of the 20 minutes, your your body will get mostly used to that. And we'll repeat that a number of times until there comes a day when just thinking about a needle would not stress the person out. Then we'll graduate to another thing. Now you think about actually needles going into your arm. Eventually your body gets used to that. Now, and then event, you know, slowly but surely we work our way down the road and every step of the way is not overwhelming, but, um, there's definite progress moving down the road. So with social situations, we'll do the same with you. We might have you visualize giving a speech or we might have you visualize being at a party and having to say something, or maybe we'll role play or something and you'll monitor your distress and you'll do your distress, um, reduction techniques that we'll establish. The thing is, is over time, what this will do is that your your body will become accustomed to these things. And when you enter them in the real world, uh, you'll actually not be anxious. You'll it'll just be like regular, you know, life to you. And that's going to take some time now. So that's the exposure part that I would go over with people. For some other people, it's it's other things like I said, attachment issues where they were, um, you know, left alone a lot as kids. And so they, they need secure attachments in order to just even believe that other people don't hate them. They might have PTSD. Uh, often social anxiety disorder people have PTSD because the anxiety is so overwhelming that they can actually be traumatized by certain social interactions, certain types of social interactions. So you have to do exposure with that and you have to talk about what trauma is. And so it can take a long time and, and it's much more than just skills and deep breathing. You know what I mean? So that's what I've observed in terms of the stigma. And we, you know, we all just need to work against that. And part of it has to do with actually listening to podcasts like this about mental illness or about mental conditions, which is a word I'd rather use. And we um, have to just talk about it more. We have to just make it a part of regular life. And let me just lay out some things that everyone out there can do to reduce stigma. 
is talking about it more, just just talking about it like it's not like it's nothing crazy. By you know, if you're a client, if you're in therapy, talk about it more. Just be like, well, you know, my therapist said this or that. You'll be surprised how many people will be like, whoa, I can't believe you're admitting that you go to therapy. Um, like I said, in Seattle, it's like everyone's going to a therapist, so it's not that big of a deal, but every little bit counts. You can talk about your own mental conditions. You could say like, oh, you know what? I've really suffered from OCD, like the full-blown disorder. Or, wow, you know, after my baby was born, I went through some, some pretty depressed times, and I, I sought out the help from professionals and... You know, just a matter of, of conversation, you know, if it's appropriate, for, you know, to the time. Donating to causes. Uh, but here's the thing. You have to bug your politician. Or if you are a politician, you got to bug your, all, your other politicians. We need to start actually changing our government and our policies and our money allocation so that it's given the attention that it needs. And until then, we're going to continue to see many, many people suffer without ever getting access to a therapist. Now, when people email me from all around the world, about a third of you actually don't live in the United States. And there are people who live in, you know, some rural location in Poland and or Sweden or something. And they'll just be like, you know what? We don't really have therapy in my area. And not to say that Sweden and Poland doesn't have therapists, but you know what I'm saying. And so I will say, well, geez, I don't know what to, I don't know what to tell you. You know, maybe there's an online therapist or something, but it's the same in the United States. I mean, the United States is uh, arguably one of the most um, non-stigmatizing places in the world, society-wise, and is the richest country in the world. And yet, most of our citizens do not have access to clinicians when they need one. I just find that to be one of the most backward, ridiculous things. In 500 years, they're going to look back at us and say, like, what the fuck were you doing? You know, 2019 people, don't you realize what you were doing? In the same way that when we look back at people in the 17 and 1800s and we're like, why were you bleeding people? Someone had a, the flu or they had an infection and you, you opened their veins and drained them of life-giving blood. That was your idea of medical treatment we laugh at that ha 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 there are so many things that people are going to laugh at us about so many things you know climate change policy for one i'm sure they'll really notice what we how we fucked up this, that one but another thing is mental illness stigma or mental condition stigma or just mental stigma <laughs> stigma about recognizing one has even fucking emotions there's stigma around that so it, it's, it's laughable. And, you know, I, I apologize to every future person who has to, you know, look back at our society and just be, you know, at, you know, just upset. It's like, I, I apologize. If anyone's listening to this in 500 years, I personally apologize to you for having to, um, I don't know, be subjected to such, such silliness in a, in a society-wide thing, when we know better. There's so many things that we could be doing that we just don't do because why? I mean, it's, it's very upsetting. Anyway, let's move on. All right, this next email is from an anonymous patron. She writes, 
I want to thank you for doing your podcast titled Combat Veterans and PTSD, published September 18, 2017. My brother and I are both in the military. We both serve in different law enforcement capacities within our services. I have focused on host nation security force assistance in Afghanistan and other locations, while my brother has focused on traditional law enforcement in Navy bases both overseas and here in the United States. His job required him to not only recover bodies of other service members who have killed themselves, but he has also had to respond to challenging security incidents. But but because he has never been deployed to a war zone, I did not think that he could have PTSD in the way that most people associated PTSD with veterans. Well, he recently took his own life, and listening to your podcast has helped me put his death into context. As a nation, we have been engaged in this global war on terror for over 17 years. For me, thinking of his death as a consequence of this protracted state of conflict helps me understand it a little more. Can you talk about the fact that women in the military are experiencing more and more combat PTSD? And she asked a number of other questions. End of email. First off, I just want to say I'm so, so sorry for your loss, um, your brother to have killed himself, that must have been heartbreaking and shocking and traumatizing. And to think back at all the help that he had done for people who had lost service members in that way, and how he probably internalized a lot of the, uh, of the you know, the, the quote unquote first responders often are traumatized secondarily or primarily by doing that kind of work, and they're often not given any support. I mean, imagine it's your job, part of your job as a police officer or a Navy security person to investigate or be one of the first people on the scene when someone kills themselves. I mean, we're talking about, you know, just the fact that someone's dead can be traumatic enough, but a lot of times guys will kill them. They'll shoot themselves, right, in the head. And so imagine having to be one of the first people there, or even one of the people who has to, you know, clean it up. So I'm guessing that, yeah, he, although he wasn't deployed overseas and and at war with the enemy directly, he absolutely was part of, we'll call it the trickle-down trauma that occurs. You have people on the front lines being traumatized by war, and then those people go home and kill themselves. And then the people who show up on the scene are also traumatized and then they might kill themselves. And then the family members of those people are now traumatized. So it's just this constant trickle down of the trauma. Now, what I'll say, if you're out there and I know many of you are, are thinking about suicide occasionally, I just want to tell you that, uh, you know, for the vast, vast, vast majority of people, something, you know, 99, I'll just rough estimate, 99% of people who think about suicide and even attempt, later on, they're glad they didn't die. Because motivation for suicide is something that happens very quickly, and can last maybe even just like a few hours, and then someone will attempt in those few hours. Not to say that they weren't kind of thinking about it leading up to that. But so the thing I'll say, if you're one of those people is, have a whole plan, obviously be in therapy, but have a whole plan on how to deal with those moments. It's like, if you're going on a hike, you got to bring a snack with you, you know, you have to bring a GPS or 
you know, safety devices, right? You don't just wander into the wilderness. Well, if you have suicidal ideation, you can't just wander into life without some kind of safety kit. And part of the safety kit is having a whole safety plan around when your suicidal ideation spikes. Who do you call? What do you do? Um, all those kinds of things. Because, you know, we just really need to make sure you, you get through those times. Because, like I said, 99 estimated percent of people after having a spike in motivation will be glad they didn't follow through with it because they're just like, wow, I was in a pretty bad space those 48 hours and I'm glad that I didn't follow through. Um, so the patron, anonymous patron asked some questions, but I asked for more information because she was wanting to, I think, to spread you know knowledge that women are also impacted because the narrative often about PTSD in the military is that men are in the front lines being traumatized. And what she's saying is that women are more and more playing roles in combat experiences or, or very close to combat and are also incurring these very traditional PTSD conditions. So I asked for more information and she wrote, my job in Afghanistan was to train and mentor the Afghan national police. We did this by going to the police stations and partnering with them. My unit conducted joint walking patrols through both rural and urban areas. We also met with local government officials to try to improve the Afghan government's abilities to provide security and services to the local citizens. During that time that I was deployed, there was a big emphasis on conducting 24 to 48 hour missions at least twice a week with the Afghan National Police. This involved spending the night at their police stations. I've never been I've never shot anyone nor have I ever been shot at directly, but my soldiers have. Also, my vehicle has never been hit with an improvised explosive device, but one in front of me was, and I have responded to several IED strikes. Our forward operating base took indirect fire at least weekly. Despite all this, my experience in Afghanistan was very positive. Bad things happened, sure, but bad things didn't happen every day. I was in, leaders I was in a leadership position, and I was part of a cohesive unit. Through this experience, I learned that the human condition is universal. People suffer when they lose loved ones. They celebrate births and marriages. They generally, want, they generally want for their children to live a better life than they had, and they want to improve their communities. However, when I returned home from Afghanistan, I developed some really weird behaviors. Upon returning to my house after work, I would get my privately owned weapon, load it, and literally clear my house, like open all the doors, closets, and check all the rooms to make sure that my home was safe. I did this room-clearing behavior for at least a year before I decided to start therapy because I was worried that my neighbors would see me and call the police. Additionally, I slept with a loaded gun in my nightstand, and I also developed some really aggressive tendencies. For instance, one evening, I accidentally locked myself out of my house, and instead of doing something rational, like calling a friend or my landlord, I decided to kick my door down. I acknowledge that none of these behaviors are normal, but I believe that these behaviors would be more accepted if they were to be conducted by a man. I, didn't, I don't consider myself to have PTSD, but I currently see a therapist to work on these issues. My therapist is really respectful, and he doesn't label these behaviors because he knows I am a little sensitive about labels and diagnosis. He is, he is, he is really effective. I no longer clear my house when I return home from work. I don't sleep with a loaded gun in my nightstand, and I haven't kicked a door down in quite some time. Through our sessions, we have spent a lot of time discussing my difficulties being vulnerable. 
my understanding of what he explains is that you have to allow yourself to be a little vulnerable to build the trust that is necessary for a healthy relationship. And then she asks some questions. What are your thoughts about labels and diagnosis? In general, do you think diagnosis and labels are necessary and helpful, or can they be harmful to a client? Um, yeah, well, I kind of talked about this with the previous email. Absolutely. Because of stigma, and even among clinicians, when you apply a label to somebody, that can actually harm somebody. For example, if if you label someone with borderline personality disorder, and they just, you know, uh, go to an, another clinician or a facility and that label follows them, there's, I don't know, a 50-50% chance that their next clinician is not going to want to work with that person because they have a stigmatized, erroneous view of what borderline personality disorder is. And so labels can be extremely destructive. If you tell school administrators that someone has ADHD or that someone has a develop or a learning disorder or something. There are absolutely negative consequences that can happen to people for sure. But this isn't, it's not the label's fault. It, this is the fault of stigma. And we, we need to not attack the labels. We need to attack the stigma in the same way that we don't want to attack gay people for being gay or the word gay. We want to attack the stigma about gay people for example, in the past, when I was growing up, we would call developmentally disabled people retarded. But today, you can't say retarded. In fact, if you're below a certain age, in all likelihood, just me saying retarded makes you cringe. But it doesn't to me, because I grew up without any stigma around the world retarded. That Retarded just means slow, meaning you learn slower than other people. That's all it means. And developmentally disabled to me sounds harsher to some to some extent but of course society today at, because what happened was because um, before in back the, so the there's a whole history of these words like moron and idiot were all words that were originally not stigmatized they were just bland clinical words but over time what people will do is as a way of putting people down they'll call people retarded right so when i was you know a kid They'd be, oh my God, you're retarded. And once that became, so you have, initially you have seven-year-olds saying you're retarded. And that was something that was rare. And, where, and you had clinicians and adults using the word retarded in a totally non-stigmatizing way, a non-harmful you know, harmful way. But then you have seven-year-olds, 10-year-olds, and then those 10-year-olds grow up to be 25-year-olds, and they start calling everyone retarded. And now you have a world in which the word has changed from being something that's, that's not a terrible word to something that's really, really awful. And when you ever use the word retarded, you basically mean something really awful. And so what did we have to do? Well, we had to change the label from, to developmentally disabled. And, uh, but we don't want to attack the label because uh, that's not the point. We have to attack the stigma. Eventually, I suspect in 40 years, we won't be calling people developmentally disabled anymore because that word will be used in a derogatory way and we'll have to change the word again. So we have to um, think about the labels for sure in the short term, but we really have to think more long term about this and and reduce the stigma altogether. My guess is, is anonymous patron, you're saying like, you know, I, I don't really like the label of PTSD. Well, I suspect it's because of the stigma. Uh, there's nothing wrong with saying you have PTSD. It kind of sounds like you do, by the way. Or at the very least, you have a trauma reaction, right? 
And what's wrong with that label? It's, it's not, it, there's nothing bad about it. Um, I, to me, it's liberating. It's like, oh, there are, you know, mounds and mounds of research supporting the normalization of what you're experiencing. You went through something really harrowing, uh, you know, having an IED blow up the car in front of you and harming people or arriving on scene after an IED blows up and you're seeing, you know, injured and perhaps deceased individuals or you're sleeping in a police station in Afghanistan and you don't know if you're going to get attacked in the middle of the night. I just can't believe how terrifying that would be. And the body just can't handle that kind of fear. Uh, it, there are, there's going to be an effect in the same way that you can't like take a cigarette to your skin and just burn yourself and expect it, you know, no harm to occur. Fear is the same way you, you expose people to chronic fear, which is a total rational, helpful response in, in a short term kind of situation will actually damage your soul, your psyche. It is, you know, think of it like, with the old computer monitors, when you would burn in an image, well, it's the same with fear. When you experience something over and over and over again, you have this burnt in image of terror. And then you go home to the United States and there's no risk or the very little risk of there being a problem like there was when you're in Afghanistan. And yet you still feel the same fear. That's, you know, a trauma reaction. So I, I think it's liberating and helpful to, to see things through those research lenses. Now, in certain cultural pockets, there's probably so much stigma, perhaps in the military, that, yeah, you don't want to be labeled as something. Because I know for sure, because I've talked with military folks, because in the Seattle area, there's there's a lot of Army and Navy bases, Air Force bases, um, so relative to other places. And so there's a fair amount of military people that I've treated. And the military people I've worked with, some of them will say, if, if I get diagnosed with anything, let alone PTSD, I can't, I will lose my job or I'll lose my ability to be promoted or, you know, all these kinds of things. And I just find that to just be so backward um, that, you know, for the military to think that their uh, personnel are not traumatized is just like just being in complete denial. And it's based on this notion of like, well, if we allow people to be traumatized, then we're going to have a bunch of crybabies on our hands and we're not going to have a bunch of tough soldiers. And what I'm here to tell you is that if you want to make a tough soldier, you got to help them work through their trauma. You got to help them with their emotional regulation. You have to give them a chance to get help, just like you wouldn't expect someone with like a bullet in their leg to like pick themselves up and start fighting again. You, they got to go to the hospital. Well, when you're traumatized, you, you need some help. You need, a, you need some R&R. &R, you need a break for your brain to recover. And, and when you don't do that, guess what happens? Suicide rates skyrocket, which is what's happening. And other atrocities, by the way, domestic violence, murder, other kinds of crime, addiction. It's all higher prevalence among military folks. It's easy to research this. And we have a problem, again, just to rant and rave about stigma again. We, you know, not only do we have a government and society that ignores it, but we also, of course, have a military uh, complex that ignores it as well. And it's just awful to, I mean, it, it, it's one thing when someone gets traumatized. It's another thing when someone gets traumatized in the name of your country, all of us live in countries with militaries who are likely being deployed. And those people are marching off in your name. They, your tax dollars are paying for them to do what they're doing. Your politicians are, 
ordering them to do what they're doing. They are doing things in your name and they are coming back and they're so, you know, traumatized without any help that they will kill themselves. And that's on our hands because we're not doing a fucking thing about it. People are doing things about it for sure, but we're not doing enough. And I just find it to be just awful. Uh, And this is nothing to, I'm not even talking about like the sexual abuse that occurs in military, which I've heard a lot of firsthand stories about as well, but we won't go down that road today. Um, Other questions. What do you think about the association from her? She says, what do you think about the association between combat experience and trying to be vulnerable in a relationship? Is it related? Is it something that both men and women veterans experience? So this is interesting. So she's, she's saying that, you know, my therapist is saying that I have a hard time being vulnerable and this is causing a lot of problems in my relationships because I'm not trusting other people enough and I'm not, you know, I need to be more vulnerable apparently. Is it related to being in the military or something? And I don't know. I mean, maybe. I, I mean, I, I could see military people having a, a slighter, uh, you know, bigger risk for this sort of thing because not only are they living in a society that shames emotion, but now they also are in a military context that shames emotions even more. So I'm guessing that it's um, particularly tough for military people, for sure, men and women. But here's the thing. Everyone I know has trouble being vulnerable. I mean, that's the definition of being vulnerable, right? It's scary. Just like it's hard to, I don't know, jump off a cliff. (laughs) Um, You know, there's always going to be a little fear there. So, but even just saying that, I will say that I don't know, I, I just did a mental kind of inventory as I was reading this email earlier. And I was trying to think of anyone I know who I wouldn't characterize as being, um, anxious or having trouble being vulnerable with other people, including myself to the point where there are problems that emerge because of that vulnerable, because of that lack of ability to be vulnerable. Now there are people who are particular, have a particular hard time with that, but we grew, we all grew up being very vulnerable. We were, you know, 12 months old, two years old, and we're, we're extremely vulnerable you know, minute to minute, we're crying, we're upset, we're happy, we're sad, we're angry, we're aggressive. We're in a very vulnerable place and we're very open about our emotions. Well, what happens through, I'm guessing just normal parenting, but well, but particularly the way we parent our kids in our society is they emerge into age six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, having internalized this notion that their emotions are bad and that they need to not feel them and that they need to be strong, and that they need to, um, for most kids, things are changing. There's a lot of attunement-oriented parenting practices that are happening for sure. So there's a lot of healthy kids. I I imagine more healthy kids today than in the past, um, given cultural movements of parenting. But but, uh, at least in this way, um, there's there's problems with today's parenting that didn't exist 20 years ago, but I don't think this is one of them, in my observation. But anyway, so most of us anyway, emerge from childhood with this notion uh, or emerge into later childhood and adolescence with this notion that emotions are bad and our emotions are bad and that being vulnerable is is not good. Because when you are, in in all likelihood, no one's going to be there to catch you. 
And so you just have, so people end up having these policies of just like, well, just don't open up, don't trust. Well, guess what happens? We don't get our needs met. And when we don't get our needs met, bad things happen. Plus we resent other people for not meeting our needs. And we might get real awkward when we are vulnerable and real pressuring and really forcing of other people to, to like really accommodate us and meet our needs. But what ends up happening is um, they can't really meet those expectations, so high, those high expectations. And then guess what? They fail us. And then we go back to our corners and we, you know, have another reason not to be vulnerable. So to answer your question, yeah, it could be related to military, but really uh, it's, it's everybody. There's, there's, I don't know anybody who has, I, I've, I've probably, if, I mean, just mental inventory in my head, I can't think of a client or supervisee for that matter, or student who I didn't at least think they need to work on being more vulnerable for sure. Um, I mean, just to put it in other practical terms, I am frequently talking with my trainees, my supervisees about being more vulnerable about their stress because they will left to their own devices, they'll just suffer. Being a novice therapist is extremely stressful. It's one of the most stressful things people will go through. It doesn't sound stressful, honestly, but it's very stressful. So for lots of different reasons. And, you know, and you novice therapists often think that they have to be these like stoic, strong, quote unquote, people. And also therapists often had a lifetime of being self-sufficient a lot of times. You know, they're the people that people went to when they were having trouble. So they ended up, I think physicians are like this too. And so physicians, therapists are already particular at a deficit with regards to being able to be vulnerable. And then they have this massive stress as they become trained as a clinician. And I'm there saying, you have to be more vulnerable. Like you're going to break. And I'm seeing evidence of you breaking, like burnout, like lack of empathy for your clients, like not wanting to be a clinician anymore. And so anyway, being vulnerable is very important for everybody. Um, I suspect what your therapist is talking about is that you are, um, you know, you're meeting people and you're being very strong and that sort of thing, but you're not being vulnerable. So no one really knows that you have any needs and then you don't get your needs met. But plus there's a very bonding action that happens when you're vulnerable to other people. So, you know, you're, say you're dating someone and it's like date 10 and you had a bad day at work and you're just like, you know what, on, on our, on this date, I I just want to, I just want to cry about something that happened at work. And I just want you to listen and, you know, I don't, need to, I don't need you to fix anything. And then you cry for a half an hour about something that happened at work. The person hearing you are there. So many wonderful things are happening in that moment. Um, one, you're getting your needs met, which is great. But another thing that happens to the listener, the, you know, the person who's listening is they feel needed. When, when you take it from a therapist, there is a very gratifying thing that happens when people reach out to you for help. And, and you succeed in helping them. So you're talking on your 10th date and you're crying and you're like, oh my God, you know, my boss, blah, blah, blah. And your date's like, wow, I feel, I feel special. I feel needed. And I feel good that I was able to help in this fairly easy way. I just listened and I cared and that's easy to do. And it's this wonderful, wonderful thing that our 
human evolution must have devised for us to get through the day. And for us not to do that is denying all of us, both the listener and the teller, of something that's very wonderful. So vulnerability is 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 one of the most beautiful things on the planet. Um, so, yeah. There's just so much stigma around being vulnerable, you know? Like, I hear a lot of people saying, I don't want to be a burden. And, oh, you know, first world problems or... I just need to move on or I need to suck it up or I need to let it go or I'm overly sensitive or um, I don't want to dwell on this. I, I can't, if you know, I can't tell you how many times I hear that phrase. I don't want to dwell on this or no one wants to hear me droning on and on about my problems. And I'm just here to tell you like um, you deserve to drone on and on about your problems and have people listen, particularly because it's not, that fucking hard to listen to someone droning on and on about the problems. Take it from a professional person who listens to people talk about their problems. It's not hard. <laughs> you know, uh, I listen with compassion and I care and I'm in the moment and I'm with them and it's not hard work. Um, it actually makes me feel good to be there for that person. So, you know, there's just so many, where do we get those voices? You know, just suck it up, just move on, just let it go. We didn't get, we didn't invent those. When we were two years old, we didn't have those thoughts. Someone told us those thoughts. Someone shamed us into having those thoughts. So we just need to put an end to that. All right, let's go on to another email. But first, let's take a break. Let's take a break. All right, we're back from the break. I think I've announced this recently, but I just want to make sure that everyone knows that we're having our 11th anniversary show on August 10, 2019. And what we're going to do is Umberto and I are going to do 11 straight hours of podcasting live on YouTube. So it's going to be a live YouTube stream starting at 8 a. no 9 a.m. Seattle time and going until 8 p.m. Seattle time. And then right afterwards, we're going to drive downtown and we're going to go to Gameworks, which is in the middle of downtown Seattle. And it's a place with a bunch of video games and, you know, it's just, and it's, there's a bar and a restaurant and all that kind of stuff. And what we're, what we're going to do is I haven't reserved a room because I don't know how many people are coming, but I do know that the place is big enough to accommodate a lot of people. So, um, so what we're going to do is we're going to meet in the balcony above the restaurant. So there Gameworks is a kind of a large complex, but there's a restaurant bar area and right above, you just go right up the stairs right there. There's this, there's this landing, a little balcony up there with some couches and some pool table and an air hockey table. And so we're going to meet up there. So what I want people to do is if any volunteers could actually arrive there early, like at, I don't know, six, seven o'clock, kind of reserve the spot you just kind of, you know, camp there for a couple hours, maybe get a bite to eat or something. And then Umberto and I and my wife, Stacy, will actually get there uh, probably around 830 or something. And what we want to do is we want to, we're just going to show up and we're going to have a couple of drinks and we're going to meet people and we're going to, you know, take selfies and, you know, whatever, maybe play some games together and maybe some air hockey together, maybe some pool or just a relaxing time. And this will be our third meetup with the listeners, and I'm really looking forward to it. It's extremely um, gratifying to meet the listeners, so hopefully you can join us. Obviously, if you live in the Seattle area, it's 
pretty easy to attend if you're into it. Um, but also, you know, if you're coming in from out of town, uh, people have flown in from out of town for the other live events too. And so, you know, it, I, I plan, Roberto and I will probably be at GameWorks from, you know, 8.30 until closing at 1. It closes at 1. So, um, and we might even go to karaoke or something after that. I don't know. But um, some people are like, well, I'm a little shy. I don't, you know, really know what to do. Yeah, there, there's not gonna there's not gonna be any requirement for you to do anything. You can you can sit in the corner and do nothing. You can, um, you know, it. We've had other events in the past, and what I find is that for the shy people, because there are you know people are shy. Um, Umberto and I just walk up to you and say, "How are you doing?" <laughs> because when you're you know hanging out for like three or four hours, it's pretty easy to. Um, to do, you know, and, and Umberto and I really do want to meet everybody. So, uh, I suspect given past events, probably, I don't know, 40 people will be there ish. Um, you know, it could be as many as a hundred, I don't know, but I'm guessing it'll probably be in the ballpark of about 50 people or something. So just to give you an idea of all that, um, if, if you go to the Facebook page and there's an event made on our, our Facebook page, um, you could, you know, monitor everything. If you say you're attending, then any updates um, you'll get there. And yeah, but also make sure you tune in to the live stream. Uh, we will be doing regular episodes, but we'll also be responding to comments. You know, when you, when you have YouTube live streams, there's like a comment string that you can add to. And also we will probably be looking on our discord as well to, you know, we might like, be talking about something and then we'll be like, okay, everyone out there in the live stream, what do you think about this? And then, you know, we'll, we'll get responses. So I think it'll be fun. The great thing about this is that in past events, they were live events in Seattle and uh, people from out of town couldn't participate. And of course, the vast majority of our listeners don't live in the Seattle area just because this is on the internet. So this will be great to actually, you know, have some real-time interaction with people all over the world. Having said that, also, we're, we're doing Discord every Thursday, which is a live chat uh, forum situation, every Thursday, 2 p.m. Seattle time. And I'm actually thinking about, if you're not familiar with Discord, it's uh, chat-based where you, you, know, you, you ask a question, you can respond, and you can post memes and whatever. And... What I'm thinking about doing is changing it to be a voice channel where people will type in questions and I'll respond with uh, verbally. So anyway, all right, let's go on to another email. All right, this next email is from patron Alexandra. She writes, I was wondering what the relationship is between uncontrollably crying and borderline personality disorder. I'm asking because I experienced traits, traits of borderline personality disorder and I find if someone says something that upsets me, I go into a spiral of sudden tears and will cry uncontrollably along with shuddering teeth. Why is that? And I, my response is, uh, you know, I, I don't know you well enough to know the answer to that question because I would have, it's a pretty complex thing in terms of personality and your traumas and um, how um, visceral the uh, the, the uncontrollably crying response is. I mean, the bottom line I'll say is there's nothing wrong with crying. I mean, um, some people cry a lot. And I mean, I as I get older and as I connect more with other human beings and myself, I, I, I cry a lot more as well. And 
there's just nothing wrong with that. Um, it's just more of that stigma, right? I mean, I'll be in a room full of therapists and someone will start crying and they'll be like, oh my God, I'm so sorry that I'm crying. And if you can't cry in front of a room full of therapists, then you really know that the, our society is really fucked up when it comes to crying. What's wrong with crying? It's just, it's just water coming out of your eyes. What's, what's the big deal? Like we just really need to be like, well, this is what I'm doing right now. It's like having to go to the bathroom or when you see something funny and you're laughing, it's just, it's just a physiological response to reality. So crying, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. But anyway, in terms of borderline and crying uncontrollably, um, I don't, I don't know your particular situation, but in general, people who suffer from relational traumas and abandonment do not have a, um, they don't have access to their sense of self usually, or at least they have a very weak connection with their sense of self. Um, and this is because they weren't given enough time, uh, love and attention when they were very young to learn who they were and to connect with who they are. And as a result, they, um, these people who experience significant relational traumas that lead to borderline, they don't have access to a self that they can rely upon when they're hurt or, or, or threatened. So when these people are hurt or threatened, they can fall into a deep, unbridled emotional state without any tether to anchor them, similar to the way an infant feels when they're really hurt or threatened. You know, when you hurt a three-year-old's feelings and they fall on the ground and they're like, oh my God, I can't believe you said that. Um, and they cry for five minutes. Um, that's not because they're histrionic. That's just because they, they haven't matured to a point where they actually will be able to withstand such a thing. You know, when when you're, you know, just for me, I, I'm, I'm connected to my sense of self and I get insulted every day. Uh, dozens of times by people on YouTube. YouTube is just a really awful, awful place. And the commenters are just, uh, for the most part, truly, truly awful. I know a lot of you on YouTube are nice, but I'm here to tell you um, 95% of commenters on YouTube are either clueless in terms of the way they're coming across or just obviously just wanting psychopathically to abuse people. It's it's really one of the most worst places on the planet YouTube is. Um, I love YouTube as a service, but the comment section, I, to me, I just wish they would just do away with it completely, honestly. I just wish, you know, it, if you're a YouTube person out there and, and you want to give me feedback, just fucking email me. <laughs> just email. If you really want me to know something, email me. Uh, I read all the emails. Um, if they're super long, I don't read them. But if they're, if they're short, especially one sentence, I'm going to read it even if it's something negative, you know, but, uh, anyway, uh, so what was I talking about? Um, so obviously I get hurt or threatened every day, uh, particularly on YouTube and I can rely on my sense of self. I can, I can, I can, when, when someone says, for example, how do you call yourself a psychologist? You have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. Read a book. Um, I will, it'll hurt me. And then I'll check in with myself. And when I check in with myself, I'm saying is, okay, this is what that person thinks. What do I think about that? And I'll say like, um, actually I consider myself to be a competent clinician and I consider myself to be smart about the topics that I discuss on the, on the podcast. Um, and if I don't feel smart about a topic, I'll say, this is not my area. So, um, 
I'll very quickly check in with myself and I'll be like, this commenter is being unreasonable or they're mistaken or who knows what's going on with them. But I'm not going to regard that opinion because it, it doesn't check with what, how I see myself. And that's be, I have that sense of self because my parents raised me well enough during a critical period of my life, you know, age two to six or so in which they gave me enough attuned parenting so that I actually know who I am and have a self that I can rely upon and have a, have self-esteem I can rely upon and, and an ability to evaluate myself. Now, if I stood in a room with 30 people and for like three weeks, they berated me, that sense of self would erode over time. So it's not like it's, you know, completely impervious, but you know, to the everyday life issues, um, my sense of self is um, a helpful tool to combat uh, attacks. But for you, Patron Alexandra, I'm guessing you don't have that connection or, or it's a, it's on a strong connection due to the relational trauma and the lack of attunement you went through early in life. And so when someone says something that upsets you, it, you don't have anywhere to turn. And so all you have is the negativity. All you have is this person's um, opinion of you or vibe towards you. And there's nothing to grab onto to, to counterbalance that. And so you just fall into despair and not only are you crying, but you're crying in such a way that um, your body is having a reaction in the same way that a three-year-old has a physical bodily reaction when they're upset. Um, it's, it, it's traumatizing, honestly. To, to not be tethered can, can lead to a lot of traumas. So um, I hope through therapy you can access yourself. That's the glory to this is that for people who are not connected to their sense of self, therapy with a relational therapist, someone who focuses on corrective emotional experiences in this way and attachment can absolutely help you develop a connection to your sense of self. We've talked about it a lot in the podcast. It's absolutely attainable. It takes years and it's hard work and it's tough, but man, is it a wonderful thing. I specialize in this kind of work, helping people to connect with their sense of self and to see people grow in that way is one of the best things that I've ever seen in my life. To see people learn who they are. Oh, these are my needs. Oh, I deserve these needs. Oh, I'm, I'm starting to notice that I, I don't, I've never liked this or that thing in my life. And I'm starting to think like, maybe I don't need to deal with that shit anymore. <laughs> it, it's this wonderful thing to see. And I just, it's hard. Like I said, it's hard work because when you see the matrix and you suddenly realize, oh my God, um, you know, my spouse is abusive or, oh my God, my, I hate my job or, oh my God, I'm living a lie. And I was just avoiding that because I was always trying to please everyone else. You know, when you realize, oh my God, I've been living this lie, you, you're angry and, you're, and you feel compelled to change it. You don't always have to change it, but there's a compulsion to change it because you're just like, I'm living a life in which I'm punishing myself for other people's gain. You know, everyone else wants me to do X, Y, and Z. And so I just did it before. But now that I see that I have different needs and wants, I don't want to do X, Y, and Z. Or maybe I, I'll do X, but I'm not going to do Y and Z. Well, this requires action, you know, and it's not easy. So I'm not saying connecting with yourself is suddenly all fun and games. It's, it's hard. 
And there's this tendency to want to slide back and be like, well, maybe I'm being selfish. Maybe I should just go back to pleasing other people. It's too hard to change. So I'll just go back to that. And that's fine. People can do that, but it usually doesn't last long. Cause once you see the matrix, once you're Neo and you know, you can see the code, it, it there's no going back. It's hard to put that cat back in the bag. And now the nice thing is, is that if you go through the work and you actually start to shape your life in a way that actually meets your needs, you know, after five or 10 years, you're living the optimal life. And I've been there with people and man, is it wonderful. It's wonderful to see. Um, uh, I mean, I, it's just a great thing. Anyway, let's go on to another email. Okay. This next email is from patron Liz. She writes, I was born with cerebral palsy, and even though it is minor, I still sense that many individuals don't know how to react to it. It has resulted in difficulties with finding employment and even within the realm of dating. I think that people fear what they don't understand. Many times we aren't given, we aren't given an opportunity, and people can fail to realize that we need and want all the things that most people do. Overall, I believe that... In having a disability, my development was de- was delayed in some ways. There are several things I would like to mention pertaining to my experiences of living with cerebral palsy, which is on the right side of my body. The first thing that comes to mind is the fact that I am the only one in my immediate family that has a physical disability. Also, there is the fact that I lost functioning in one of my kidneys at the age of seven and started experiencing seizures at the age of 11. The essence of my experience within my family is that I am oftentimes, I, I oftentimes fe- felt extremely isolated and misunderstood by them. My parents and siblings would often switch from stating things like, you're just like everyone else, to in other moments overprotecting me. In the past few years, I have, I have been able to reflect on this experience and realize that really sitting in the difficult experiences I go through was and still is difficult for them. As a result of the messages I received during childhood, I now struggle with a core belief that I am not enough. I sense that internally, the the younger me has not healed from these past traumas. As I grew older, I continued to experience being made fun of or asked questions such as, what's wrong with you? I then had surgery to improve my walk at about age 14. I feel as though people, including my family, don't fully understand how difficult it is when you are unable to do everyday things for yourself. I want to be like most people and not ask for help, but asking for help is something I've had to adapt to. I have minimal use of my right hand due to lack of strength and coordination. And for instance, some I sometimes have to guide my leg when I'm getting out of a car. I don't know if some people think we enjoy not being able to do things, but my older sister has actually scolded me in front of other people when I've asked for help. The difficulties continued pertaining to employment opportunity as well. I was often turned away because of the physical demands of my job or my physical limitations would simply limit my my opportunities. It often seemed as though everyone else around me was being provided with opportunities to shine and I was fighting just to be seen. I'm currently still working towards acceptance of the circumstances I was handed, but I now feel a sense of gratitude for having cerebral palsy and other medical problems. I believe that these particular experiences are what have contributed to my ability to empathize and connect with to people on a more meaningful level. I also believe that these experiences led to my choosing a career as a marriage and family therapist. End of email. 
Yay, that's amazing. Welcome to the fold, patron Liz, to the marriage and family therapy profession. I think you're going to do amazing work. And uh, if you want, you can work with people and their families regarding disabilities. And I can't imagine the gratitude that those families and those individuals will have for you. If you don't want to, you don't have to work with people with disabilities, but I'm sure that opportunity would be available to you. Yeah, and I could absolutely see that. I could see uh, living in a world where you're struggling with that and there's stigma and people um, treating you like you're not enough and that you're, you know, um, you're not independent and that at the same time you kind of need help. And I could absolutely see that helping you to empathize with other people and have compassion. I think that's one of the post-traumatic growth elements of trauma is that afterwards we often see the world differently and we wonder like, man, I wonder how many other people are suffering in similar ways that I, that I don't notice. But yeah, I mean, with physical disabilities uh, like cerebral palsy, I mean, this is the stigma episode, I guess. It's, it's awful the way we are. as We're just really stupid as a society, and it's got to change. I think intellectually everyone understands that someone with cerebral palsy um, – you know, should be treated just like everybody else. But there's something about our society that we keep teaching everyone that having um, those sorts of conditions, uh, you know, I'm trying to think off the top of my head, like, what is the stigma exactly? I mean, obviously, there's getting back to the retarded stigma. Sometimes people who have difficulty, you know, right side cerebral palsy, it will be equated with having a developmental disability, which carries with it its own weird stigma. So there's that. Um, I think there's, you know, I think one of the things, if I was just to think off the top of my head, that contributes to the stigma is our cultural joking around people who speak in different ways. Like when I, for example, I think Borat, the movie and the character and the TV show is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. But it is one of the most racist things that has ever been created. It's based, it's based on, uh, you know, we have this English guy who adopts an accent of what's considered to be like a not as good country. You know, what did Trump call him? Like shithole countries or something. And uh, so you have this privileged white person who, well, he's Jewish, so there's that. But he, you know, and the, those Jewish people certainly aren't privileged, but he is um, dressing up and adopting an accent of a foreigner and then proceeds to act like um, he doesn't know what's happening and, you know, the audience is just laughing their ass off. Meanwhile, all the, you know, Kazakhstani people are going, so our entire country is a joke to you? I mean, it's essentially just a version of of making fun of African Americans or of Polacks or something, right? And uh, so we we have this cultural tradition of making fun of foreigners. We have this cultural tradition of making fun of people who don't speak in articulate ways. And uh, I think that sort of translates, it sort of bleeds over into people who have speech impediments. I don't know if you have a speech impediment, but um, you know, we often think of people with speech impediments as, as being funny. It's like, ha ha ha, they're not talking quite right or something and moving. And so I think also moving the ability to be coordinated uh, and or the ability to not be coordinated is also somehow funny to people. 
But what honestly I think the problem is in our society, if we really want to change it, is that um, people don't have enough contact with people with cerebral palsy. So if you have more contact, say in movies and TV shows or in schools or whatever, then you, you slowly learn, oh, yeah, that's right. Liz has cerebral palsy on the right side of her body, and she's just like me. <laughs> she she likes Game of Thrones. She you know like she likes cute boys, and she likes a good hamburger. Like there's nothing different. She just has this condition that it makes it her the right side of her body is is weaker and less coordinated. Big fucking deal. <laughs> and sometimes she needs help with things like big fucking deal. Um, there's there's something about you know like. I think as a culture, given our tradition of, of joking and, stig- uh, and stigmatization, we have an easier time accepting someone in a wheelchair than we do someone with cerebral palsy based on all those reasons. And yeah, I can't imagine, Patron Liz, what it must be like for you to walk around. I mean, I'm sure the people close to you have acclimated to the reality, but you know, when you walk around in public, I just can't imagine the, um, the treatment that you get. Uh, given our weird society. I, and I could also see it swinging another way, you know, because some people think they're being really nice by being really nice to you. You didn't mention this in your email, but I've seen this before and it's real cringe worthy. It's like someone will, uh, you know, you're at, you're at the mall and, and you're shopping for clothes and, and someone thinks they're being woke and nice and they're just like, Oh, good for you that you can get out of the house and go shopping. You know, I don't, I, I've seen stuff like that before. I, I don't know if you've ever experienced that. I hope you haven't, but so there's just a lot of different horrible things. And so there's that, but I'll, I I want to comment on one thing that I think you're going through, which is when we go through difficulty um, be it cerebral palsy or you have um, like gastrointestinal problems early in life, IBS, Crohn's disease. It's very upsetting to go through that because it's it's hard to live with, right? And you look around and every, and it just seems like everyone else doesn't have to deal with those kinds of things, regardless of what age you are, by the way. I mean, you could you know, suddenly have like a, like arthritis, for example, um, you could have a pretty bad case of arthritis at the age of like 45 years old and all your friends don't have to deal with that. And there is an interesting psychological thing that happens to people, I think, because you're hurting and you need a lot of help and you need a lot of emotional support. But given our society's inability to be vulnerable and inability to notice other people's problems and inability to push past stigma. So many, the vast majority of suffering people aren't getting the support that they need, the emotional support that they deserve. And so you're sitting there suffering from something and you're not getting the emotional support that you deserve. And guess what happens over time? It compounds and you resent it. You start thinking like, how come, how come no one is helping me? This is bullshit. Like, uh, my family members don't have to deal with cerebral palsy for themselves. Why can't they dedicate a little bit of extra time and grace to help me out, or at least not to shame me or something. And so that although there's a very real empirically ob- observed stigma and mistreatment of people with cerebral palsy, there's also this internal experience that can happen for people where you just, you just resent, you know, I know for me when I, I, I suffered from back pain. Um, it's not bad now, but it was kind of bad in the past. 
And over a long, you know, months and months, you just start to build this resentment towards other people who don't have back pain. You're just like, fuck you for not having back pain. <laughs> and that doesn't necessarily do well for relationships and for, for one's attitudes, you know? Also, you talk about this, um, you're, you're both upset that people don't help you. And you're also upset that people act like you need help all the time. That's not the way you worded it. And maybe that's not exactly what you said. But essentially what I'm saying is there's, you, you want to be treated like everyone else because you don't want to be treated like you're an other. But you also need help sometimes. And you need people to actually maybe ask if you need help or you need them to be gracious enough to respond when you ask for help. So there's this dichotomy there that is impossible to resolve. You don't want to be treated like another, but you also need to be treated like another sometimes, not an other, but you need to be recognized for the fact that you don't have the abilities that everyone else has. And that is inevitably a conflict that cannot be resolved. There's just, there's just no way to resolve that happily. It's a line and a frustration that you will forever suffer. And having some wisdom around that and having people around you to have some wisdom around that is important. And we have all sorts of things like this, like uh, whether, you know, just getting away from disabilities, we all want to be um, independent. We all want people to not bother us all the time and not get into our business. But at the same time, we want people to love us and then we want people to notice us. So we want to be individuals, but we also want people to be connected to us. And there's no way to resolve that. In fact, I have a book called The Intimacy Paradox written by Williamson in a local fella. And it's a clinical book that is uh, taught. The intimacy paradox is that we both want to be separate and together. It's a, it's a furtherance of the Bowenian concept of differentiation. And it's um, never resolved. You can't, you can't resolve that. And so that tension is something that needs to be navigated with wisdom and with support and with talking with people and um, all that kind of stuff. And I kind of sense that dichotomy in you. Um, you seem to be navigating it uh, from your email well, um, but I hope you well on, on that navigation. Um, and I also, you know, just greatly sympathize with the bullshit that you've had to go through in your life. Um, it's, it's truly awful. The stigma and our ideas, I, I, you know, sometimes I wish that like in men in black, I could just hold up a pen and just flash everyone's memory away and just erase all the stigma messages that they've ever in incurred. Because the problem with our society is that new babies enter our society and, th and absorb the bullshit propaganda that we were told. And the cycle just goes on and on and on. And so you're, we're just constantly, you know, pushing back this tide of, of stigma and culture that just cannot be pushed back. And, um, you know, change is slow. Um, we managed to push back the propaganda on gay people in my lifetime, which I never thought would happen. We managed to completely change uh, the majority opinion and laws regarding gay marriage. Um, you know, for you young people out there, uh, when I was young, uh, as a teenager, uh, that was completely unheard of to the, the stigma was so high about being gay that, um, in my high school, just think about this, not a single person was out. I went to a high, I went to a high school with 
like 1300 people in it. And not a single student at the school was out as gay or bi or trans or whatever, not a single person. And statistically, I don't know, five, 10% of them were, and not a single one. Now to you young people, you're like, wow, because in my school, we had, you know, dozens of people who were out. Well, that's because we have changed our society and we've all played our part, our small part. And some people have played bigger parts like Ellen and other people, but um, we've all played our part and we can, we can change this too. Um, It's depressing that it hasn't changed yet, but we can change this too. We can change the stigma around cerebral palsy. Um, And I'm doing my little part by reading Liz's email and Liz is doing her great part by providing her experiences so that everyone can learn from them. So thank you, patron Liz. All right. This next email is from an anonymous patron. She writes, can you talk about bisexual identity and how it's downplayed as being a phase, especially for younger women? It often feels like a performance for the male gaze, or at least guys will make it into that. I've heard other accounts of women finding it hard to take their sexuality seriously when it's often portrayed as something reserved for parties and being too drunk, which happens, but it also, but it's also the everyday reality of a lot of people. I imagine that being bisexual as a man would be even more challenging in some ways, since the common assumption is that they're just too afraid to come out as gay. So being stationed in the middle of nowhere, she's in the military, so being stationed in the middle of nowhere, the friends I do have are precious to me, especially as someone who doesn't make friends easily for a number of reasons. My friend and I were at the same boot camp division, and we became good friends, and now we'll be in the same squadron together for more than three years, which is really quite unusual. I've always liked and respected him as a person and considered his friendship very important to me. He got engaged to a girl he met in October, and now, uh, blah, 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 Um, so on St. Patrick's Day, I had some friends over with them included, and um, they both know that I'm bisexual. So she has her friend and his uh, fiancé over for a party on St. Patrick's Day, and they both know that I'm bisexual, although I've never had an actual relationship with a woman, probably because I was raised Mormon. I got way too drunk and ended up making out with his girlfriend, who who wasn't nearly as drunk. I very excitedly told my friend right, right away, but he didn't seem amused, which confused me. Seeking approval, I told my boyfriend, and he asked that we do it again, though not in front of my friend, of course. Somewhere in my mind, I knew the dynamic was wrong, but I also hadn't been with a woman in a long time, so I did it anyway. I didn't think much of it, but sincerely apologized to my friend the next day as soon as I comprehended the situation. My friend never treated me the same again, and none of our mutual friends have really wanted to hang out since. He often mocks me openly at work, which affects the way most people on my ship treat me. Um, most male shipmates treat me. I'm, I'm left with the question ab- about why I didn't treat the incident as cheating in the first place. I'd, I'd never make out with a female friend's boyfriend because those implications are clearly defined in our culture. His girlfriend identifies as straight, so what did that mean with how I was allowed to relate to her? I've also had a mild grudge against my boyfriend since. He was only tipsy while he was only tipsy at the time, and while it seems like a really low thing for him to do, I don't know if I want to believe that he was validating my sexuality or just getting off. Maybe it's a possible that he was doing both. 
Another part of me wonders if it may be disrespectful to me as a person reducing my sexual expression to a thing that exists for his pleasure, regardless of the consequences he could much more easily piece together at the time because he wasn't involved or he wasn't as drunk, I think. Ultimately, I don't think I see being with a woman as a real legitimate thing, even though I'd like it to be. My family and many other people I know would range from reproaching to horrified, partly because, um, da, 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 leaving out some details. Even though I'm an atheist now, there's still that pressure. It's been really, it's been really, a, it's been a really rough month with my sudden social isolation. Luckily, I'll be going back to therapy once I get switched to working a different shift. Thanks for the podcast. My job is physically exhausting and. The podcast helps me to unwind. End of email. Yeah, uh, totally, uh, you know, I, I think your story is actually quite common. I, I've worked with a lot of clients in your situation. Um, it's clear that you're suffering, and I'm, and I'm really sorry for that. Uh, being alone and being rejected and wondering if it's your fault is just a really horrible place to be in. Um, I... I wish there was a way that you could actually reach out to your friends and to your friend, your you know close friend that you had before, and just tell them how you feel and be vulnerable in that way, and just be like, "Look, I was drunk. I'm sorry. I, you know, I don't know what I was doing at the time. I, I now realize why. I'm guessing you're you're rejecting me because you you feel like I cheat. You know, I I made your girlfriend cheat, <laughs> and at the time I I thought of it in the way that a lot of people see it, it's like, well, we're drunk at a party and two girls making out. Like it's, it's not the same thing as if, you know, I made out with someone's boyfriend, but I realized that you might feel it. It is the same, which I get because, you know, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, the thing that I think you might be going through anonymous patron from your email, and I'm, I'm not sure obviously, cause I'm not your therapist. Your therapist would know a lot better, but it seems to me like you have, needs as a bisexual person to be with a woman. And, um, you know, for, so for bisexual people, it's particularly hard, uh, for a number of reasons. One is because the stigma is often a lot worse for bi people. Um, because society, for whatever reason, we haven't pushed, uh, the progressive attitudes about bi awareness, bisexual awareness and acceptance. You know, I don't think there's really an Ellen of bisexuality. I know Channing Tatum came out as bisexual and other people too have, what, have also, but I feel like it hasn't really gotten the attention that it deserves. And, and I'll say that a good, the largest portion of LGBTQ people that listen to the podcast are bisexual people by far. Something like 10% of you listening identifies bisexual, which is much larger percentage than the general population. So for whatever reason, we're attracting a lot of bisexual people. I'm not quite sure why. But um, so a lot of you can relate to this, right? Um, you're not taken seriously. People think, yeah, it must just be a phase. Or you're in a transition phase, right? You're like you're, you used to be straight and you're transitioning into being gay or lesbian. And even gay or lesbians, uh, particularly older gay and lesbians, and particularly in the past, will see it this way. They'll be like um, – if they, you know, they come across a guy who says he's bisexual or a woman, they'll be like, oh, you're, you're just not fully out of the closet yet. You have one foot out of the closet and one foot in the closet. And it's this complete denial that bisexuality is a thing, which I find to be just a really silly thing. It's like, 
if you can have straight people and you can have gay people, then you can have people in the middle. <laughs> like it's not, it's not a hard concept to, to, to realize. Um, anyway, so, and plus you would think that society would be able to identify more with bi people than with fully gay people, right? Because society is mainly, you know, heteronormative. And so, you, you know, at least they'd be able to identify with half of you be like, okay, uh, bisexual man, I, you're attracted to women. Okay. I can identify with that side of you. Okay. You know, I'm having a harder time with the fact that you're attracted to other men, but at least I can relate to some of you. Um, but that's not how it goes. It's almost like bi people are just completely, you know, these strange abominations. And as a half, half Japanese, half white person myself, I can tell you, like, I, I know what it's like to feel like you're you're not welcome anywhere. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's it's awful. Um, and uh, now for some bi people, their sexual life uh, doesn't have this element that I'm going to get into. But for some people, it does. Where they will feel as though at, they'll have waves of time where they, they feel like they need to be intimate with the gender that they're not involved with at the time. So if you're bisexual, you might start a relationship, you know, say you're a bisexual woman and a cis woman, and you start have you're starting having a relationship with a cis man. And because you're bisexual, you know, you're romantically attracted to this person, you're sexually attracted to this person. And then a year into it, you're just, you have this, deep desire that that's not being met of being with a woman. And, um, so you don't know what to do with that. And so you say, well, I don't want to cheat, so I won't cheat, but it actually could be something quite deeper. Not all bisexual people are like this, but I've, I've had clients who are like this where essentially what I've ended up going uh, for, for some of these people is they, I, we end up thinking about polyamory, honestly, because at any given time, if you're polyamorous, you have that option of actually um, having intimacy and sexual intimacy with um, other people to satisfy your bisexual needs. Not all bisexual people are like this, like I said, but and there's plenty of bisexual people whom I know who have been married for 20 years to someone and have never cheated. So it's not like you can't have a stable long-term relationship and choose you know, one gender to spend a lot of time with. But I think for some people, it, it's a little harder in that way. Um, and so I think for you, anonymous patron, I think there was a part of you, um, you know, for reasons of stigma and being raised Mormon and all that kind of thing that has made you really suppress your needs of having intimacy with women. We, we have needs. We have a lot of needs as humans. We have needs for food, for shelter, to go to the bathroom, but we also have needs for physical intimacy uh, both friendship and family, but also sexual and romantic. We have those needs. We need a you know sexual or romantic partner to love us and to think about us, to miss us, to kiss us when they see us, to cuddle with us. Those are needs. I mean, it's quite obvious that we evolved to have those things because we all gravitate towards them, and when we don't have them, we're sad. And it, I think what was happening for you, Anonymous Patron, was that you had this mounting need inside of you, and due to life circumstances or whatever, you weren't able to get that need met, and then you got really drunk one night, and that need sort of popped out. That that need was like, okay, I'm drunk, I'm going to make this happen, and you made it happen, and what that pressure to meet that need was so great that it, you overlooked what was 
obvious to you later, which is, oh my God, I'm, I'm a, I'm a mistress. You know, I'm, I'm creating a cheating scenario where I'm, my friend's fiance is cheating on him with me, you know? And, uh, if you were, uh, perhaps able to meet that need prior at that party, you probably wouldn't have acted out in that way. And you probably would have thought about it. You might've also maybe not drank as much because if you're not getting your needs met, you might over drink at times. So now I have no idea. I don't know you well enough uh, to say any of those things scope. So I could be completely wrong, but it wouldn't be a foreign concept for a bisexual person to not have their needs met. And it's not a foreign concept for anyone not to have their, their needs met. There's so many people not getting their intimacy needs. There's so many things that can throw the wrench into the gears of romantic and sexual intimacy. There are so many people walking around right now who feel deprived romantically and sexually. And um, I mean, you don't have to look far on the internet to find groups of people like this. And even people who look completely, I I was just talking with a, a really old friend of mine the other day and we hadn't talked in a long time and he seemed totally uh, fine. He just seemed happy and, you know, he seemed the same as when I remembered seeing him last. And as the night progressed, he started telling me about his life and, you know, he, he's really suffering and there's a lot of um, lack of intimacy and lack of connection in his life. And, you know, he's really quite sad. And so it just woke me up again to say, like, you just never know. Like, a lot of people can be suffering in that way, and there's just there's no overt indication of it. You could even see them as a couple walking around together, and they might seem really close, when in reality they're really they're really struggling and can be really quite distant. So, so patron, you are similar probably to everyone in that way, and um, you know, compounded with stigma and with other issues that are making it so that you can't. Um, realize your needs and then it popped out at this party. So, you know, maybe who knows I, you're in therapy now. So I hope that, you know, you could have sent me this email three years ago. <laughs> I think this email. So you, you mentioned St. Patrick's day. So that was in relation to now, which is June of, you know, a few months ago. So either you wrote me this email recently within the past few months, or you wrote it to me, a year ago, or you wrote it to me two years ago or three years ago, who knows? (laughs) Let me know how that's going. Uh, I know we've talked um, uh, over the email at at times. So let me know. Anyway, let's go on to another email. Okay, this next email is from another anonymous patron. Oh, and by the way, if you ever email me and you want me to read it on the air, make sure you let me know if you want me to be, if you want to be anonymous or how you want me to talk about you. The easiest way to do this is to email me through the website. If you email me through the website, the Contact Us page, it asks all the appropriate questions, your pronoun, whether or not you want to be anonymous, all that kind of stuff, whether or not you even want me to read it on air or not, because sometimes people just want to email me and they don't want me to read stuff on air. So use the website, please, and or make sure you answer all those questions that are relevant. All right. Anonymous patron says, I was wondering if you could talk more on pure O OCD subtypes like relationship OCD, pedophile OCD, harm OCD, sexuality OCD, and moral OCD. So just chiming in here for a second on the email. Pure O OCD is essentially people who experience only obsessions or the main component of their OCD is obsessions and not the compulsions. People often associate OCD with the compulsions, the things you can see, like washing your hands or 
organizing all your pencils in a row or something like that, or turning the lights on and off. These are compulsions, but they will often forget that it actually, OCD begins with obsessions. And for some people, they don't really have any compulsions that are noticeable in the classic sense. And it's more characterized as mostly or, or 100% obsession-related OCD. That's what pure O OCD means. She goes on. With sexuality being fluid and society tending towards progress with LGBTQIA issues, which is awesome, which is an awesome thing, obviously, I wonder how this might actually sometimes hurt people suffering from certain OCDs, like sexuality and relationship OCD in particular. Um, so kind of summarizing what she goes on to say is, essentially with sexuality and relationship OCD, for for, for some people with OCD, what their brain turns to to obsess on is this worry that they're going to um, become that 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 their sexuality is going to change, or that they're going to do something bad to their partner. So, uh, more um, uh, one that I will often talk about related to this is that for some people they will have this obsession that they're worried that they're going to jump off a bridge. So. They're terrified of bridges because they're terrified that if they're on a bridge, they're going to just jump off the bridge. And so they won't go off bridges. Even if, even though you ask them, you say, do you want to jump off a bridge? And they're like, no, but what if I did? And so that's the nature of OCD is this, they, people due to their condition will take a small, somewhat rational worry and it will become amplified to the point where it um, causes problems. You know, Everyone would have a slight worry, I suppose, that if they're walking across the bridge, that they might suddenly decide to jump off. You know, everyone can acknowledge that, like, well, I've done irrational things. I suppose it's possible that I might suddenly just jump off the bridge, but I, I don't think that's very likely, so I'm not going to avoid bridges. I'm pretty confident that if I did have such an impulse, which I can't imagine happening, I wouldn't act on it. But the people with OCD will say the same thing to some extent, but they'll say, but what if, you know, what if it happens? That's the, that's the nature of anxiety. And so uh, another anxiety that people will have will say like, well, um, I, I, what if I want to punch someone in the face or what if, um, I want to murder somebody, you know, I can't have any knives in the house because what if I suddenly decide to grab a knife and stab my wife? And, when we hear those stories, a lot of people say like, oh, they're a psychopath. And I suppose they might be, but with relate to OCD, they're not. They're, they just have this very common form of obsession where they have a slight worry that becomes amplified and becomes intrusive where it just pops into their head like all day long and it gives them a ton of distress. And so with sexuality and relationship OCD, pure O subtypes, are when someone say they're straight and they have an obsession that they're gay or lesbian or bi or something or, or asexual. And they will want, you know, this, so, so with the, so with the bridge one, it's like, you know, what if I decide to jump off a bridge? And then that kind of grows into something else. Like, well, what if I, what if I have this sudden urge to steer my car into oncoming traffic? You know, it, it becomes this type of obsession of like, I'm worried I'm going to do something to harm myself 
Or another obsession that people have commonly, somewhat commonly, is they'll worry they're going to harm other people. Like, what if I'm taking care of my infant and I just and I shake her so wildly that I kill her? Or what if I suddenly have this urge to like throw my baby, um, you know, over an embankment or something? These are intrusive thoughts for people who have OCD. They most people with OCD know that they're not reasonable fears, but because of the mental disorder, they can't help it. It becomes completely debilitating and, and they're terrified. So in the same category of, of obsession, sometimes people can be married, happily married, and they become obsessed that they're not straight. And they become terrified that they're going to realize that they're gay and then they're going to have to leave their husband and they're um, going to cause all these problems, you know, because getting divorced is, you know, there's all these, there's all this fallout, there's all these consequences. And so, uh, so that's a sexuality, pure OCD. Um, or some people will obsess that they're going to cheat or they're going to, they're going to suddenly break up or that they, that they no longer are going to love their spouse, even though they do. And so these are all in that category of, Worrying that your brain is going to do something to you, worrying that you're going to change somehow, and there there are others. There's there's many other obsessions in this category, and this anonymous patron, um, I she talked about this a bit, and so I asked her to elaborate, and she, she uh, wrote the following here. Let me skip down. Um, let's see. Uh, when I got into my first long term relationship, I had my first experience with relationship OCD. I would doubt that I really loved him. I would fixate on certain flaws of the other person, which makes it very difficult to enjoy being with them. I would obsessively fear that I would cheat on him, so I would avoid hanging out with male friends by myself. Society often triggers this too, with unrealistic depictions of love and urging people to follow their bliss over commitment. Um, now, I also have sexual orientation OCD. My sex drive has been low recently. When I heard your podcast about asexuality, I started obsessing that I was asexual. It was deeply upsetting to me because I don't want to be asexual. It doesn't feel right to me. Then a week ago, I read an article about how a woman in her 30s was leaving, how women in their 30s are leaving men for women and becoming lesbians suddenly. And this caused a horrible, horrible downward spiral for me. And I, I wondered if I was lesbian. And I know that it's OCD because I, I'm, you know, I'm mostly interested in men and I might call myself occasionally bisexual, but uh, I know that I'm interested in men and that I know that I'm, I'm not a lesbian entirely. Uh, but the thought of losing my attraction to men is very distressing to me. And I obsessively evaluate my attraction to all men and women in my life. And so I spend a lot of time on Google uh, trying to figure out what's going on with me. I read about sexual fluidity and other kinds of things. I will literally Google things all day long, every day, for many days, trying to figure out what's what's going on. Um, and it makes me sick and depressed. The problem is some therapists and peers don't understand this subtype of OCD. So they will say things like, well, you know, if you're thinking about being gay, just be gay. What's wrong with being gay? You should embrace those beautiful changes. Why don't you just experiment with, with being gay? End of email. Yeah, right. So, I, and I totally get what this anonymous patron is talking about. Essentially, you have OCD globally, 
Um, and she talks in other parts of the email that I didn't read in which she had hypochondria and other kinds of OCD um, manifestations. That's the thing about anxiety. It just kind of morphs into different topics essentially throughout your life. And so uh, as a part of that OCD, she recognizes that she also will go down a downward spiral of terror, unreal, un unreasonably worrying that she's not straight. And although it's fine to, to not be straight and she recognizes that she's like, you know, I might have some internalized homophobia, but I'd, I would like to think that if I was actually a lesbian, I, I'd be okay with it. Um, and the way she describes it, it very much sounds like OCD. Um, and it's a common one. It's a, it's a very common one. I've heard men and women talking about this sort of um, obsession and, and, you know, those problems. And when you go to a therapist and you're like, I'm really distressed because I keep thinking that I might be a lesbian and I'm Googling all the time to figure out, you know, most therapists are going to say, well, maybe you're a lesbian, like go with it, you know, because that's what is often a wonderful intervention for people coming out of the closet is just to be like, it sounds like you have an emerging identity that it needs to be valued. But what they don't understand is that there's a, type of OCD that absolutely manifests like this. And so they might actually contribute to the problem for the person with OCD because the, the therapist is like, well, maybe you're a lesbian. And that's exactly what the, the OCD is, is terrifying the person of, you know, it'd be like you go to a therapist about your worry that you're going to jump off a bridge and your therapist is like, well, maybe you do want to jump off a bridge. Maybe you're suicidal. I mean, it's literally analogous in that way. And so um, with this misunderstanding of uh, how to assess for someone's overall global OCD and how it might just be manifesting itself in that way. Um, now, having said that, it's also possible that some people are both coming out and realizing that they're a lesbian and they have OCD in this way. It, it could happen at the same time. But the bottom line is, anonymous patron, is that you are clearly suffering from OCD, as you know. And that is horrible. And I really, really feel your pain. And, you know, OCD is just one of the worst things. I mean, there's a lot of worse things in the DSM, but OCD is just relentless. It is just this relentless, you know, I, I've, in my head, I visualize in Lord of the Rings, you know, the ring wraiths. They, they're just relentless. They don't sleep. They just, they just keep coming for you. And it's, it's horrific. I just wish there was a pill we could take to erase this. Um, you know, the best thing you can do is medication, try different medications, and uh, at least once a week therapy, if not day treatment. Uh, sometimes day treatment is what you need because from your description, it sounds like you might actually benefit from that. Because you're talking about Googling all day, every day for several days, obsessing on whether or not you're a lesbian or whether you're asexual or not. Uh, going to therapy once a week might not actually be enough. You might, in the same way that people with eating disorders, you you know, people with eating disorders can't, for many people with the typical range of their, the intensity of the symptoms, you can't go to therapy just once a month, once a week. It, that is not enough. What you need is day treatment where you figure out a way for your insurance to pay for you to actually go for maybe four to eight hours to a facility where they can actually set up a non-triggering environment for you that involves therapy, but also just provides structure. Uh, 
as you get on your phone and start Googling whether or not you're a lesbian, someone's right there and they're like, hey, you're, you're engaging in your obsession again. Let's do our deep breathing. You know, let's go to our cognitions. And, you know, they'll, they'll work with you on that right there in the moment. And, at, I mean, at the very least, maybe find friends and family who can be there for you. Because to suffer from OCD in isolation and expect that you can somehow, like, turn it around is totally unreasonable. There's no – people with OCD cannot turn it around with willpower. It's not possible. It's powerful. So um, I, hope that, uh, I hope that you can get that help. Um, and I, man, do I feel for you the way you describe this, it just sounds so debilitating and I'm, I'm really sorry for that. All right, let's do one more email here. Uh, this is from an anonymous patron. She writes that her husband, let's see, sir, my husband has ADHD and was diagnosed in elementary school and still struggles today. He sees a therapist and a psychiatrist. My question is about a new diagnosis that I've been seeing called rejection-sensitive dysphoria. Evidently, it's a term used in the ADHD world, but as a mental health provider, I had never heard of it. I, I listened to your deep dive on attachment theory, and I was relating it to attachment. It seems like it's more about those with insecure and disorganized attachment styles, not ADHD. Also, can you speak about this as a diagnostic clinical term? It's new to me, but I'm a new licensed social worker. Um, yeah. So, yeah, let's get into relation um, rejection-sensitive dys dysphoria. Rejection-sensitive dys dysphoria. Um, I had never heard of it either. <laughs> I'll just say that. Uh, I had to do a little shallow dive into it right now. Apparently, it is what it sounds like, which is you're someone who has who who has that label uh, reports that they are very sensitive to being rejected and have a lot of sadness and distress about their um experience of rejection from other people um and that as a result they 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 set high standards for themselves they might be kind of shy they might have strong emotional reactions they might be depressed. They might have a fear of failure. They might have low self-esteem. They might be hopeless. They might criticize themselves a lot. And the only web, so I, I looked it up in the research database and can't, there's not a single article in my database that I can, that I can find on the topic. Now it's possible it's being researched in other areas that I don't have access to those journals, but um, it's pretty rare that something I can't find a single um, research article that references it at all. So, um, but I didn't look into it that far. I, I might have been using the wrong search terms. I don't know. But um, so rejection sensitivity dysphoria. Uh, I th so I started look. So the only resources I could find were websites on ADHD. And a lot of these websites are, you know, they're just put together by regular people. I don't think they're put together by clinicians, but they're particularly not put together by researchers, by the way they're writing. Um, and to the average viewer, it might look legit, but I don't know. So um, just to quote some of the things here, they're saying rejection sensitivity is a part of ADHD, they'll say. Okay. Another quote. Almost 100% of people with ADHD experience rejection, rejection sensitivity. 
another quote here. And this is actually from WebMD, which I now have uh, less respect for because this doesn't make any sense to me, is psychotherapy does not particularly help patients with uh, rejection sensitivity, sensitivity di- rejection sensitive dysphoria because the emotions hit suddenly and completely overwhelm the mind and senses. So WebMD is saying that therapy doesn't work at all. Now, I, I don't claim that it does because I don't even know particularly what they're talking about when they're talking about rejection sensitivity dysphoria because I don't see anything in the literature, but to, to have on WebMD this claim that psychotherapy doesn't work, um, they can't claim that because there's been no research. <laughs> like no one has researched it. So they're, so WebMD and other websites are talking about ADHD and rejection sensitivity dysphoria. They're just talking out of their ass as far as I can tell. Now, I tried to find sources for what they were saying and I couldn't find any. So maybe they have sources, but I, I certainly couldn't find any. Um, and I just did a quick search on Google Scholar and also found pretty much nothing. Um, there's two references to rejection sensitivity dysphoria. One isn't really a reference to it, and the other person, I think, is just talking about it in passing. But anyway, so I think two things are happening here. Is I think that this, for some people, it's just another term for borderline or preoccupation. So when you're preoccupied attachment style, you are pretty sensitive to rejection because you were rejected um, occasionally and traumatically as a child. And so you're very sensitive to being rejected. You're very sensitive to being broken up with. You're very sensitive to being fired from a job. You're very sensitive to being criticized. Um, and I think that since our society and our industry, frankly, has stigmatized borderline to such a degree, a lot of people are looking for other labels because they're trying to escape that stigma and rejection sensitivity dysphoria Um, might be that place for them. Uh, It certainly is a very descriptive label, and um, I think it's fine. Uh, But to say it can't be treated and that it's uh, totally associated with ADHD, it's just kind of funny. Plus, some people with borderline and preoccupied attachment style can appear to have ADHD because when you're really preoccupied with rejection and you have low self-esteem and you're frequently obsessing about whether or not someone loves you or not, you're going to be distracted and it's going to be hard for you to concentrate. So it might look like ADHD when in fact you actually don't have it. Um, So I think that might be part of it. I'm not sure. Obviously I haven't looked into it that much. Um, The other thing that I think it's referring to is the very real thing that happens to ADHD people. When, when you have ADHD, like legit ADHD in that you have a brain disorder that makes it hard for you to pay attention It makes it hard for you to stay on task. It makes it hard for you to remember certain task um, sequences. And um, when you have trouble with that, you are going to face pretty much constant rejection as as a young person from the point in which you can start to behave in ways that you can be criticized, like at the age of like one, until you're like, you know, 14 years old. You're, you're in this constant state of people saying things like, you know, what's wrong with you? How come you can't ever listen to me? And, you know, how come you can't stay on task? I mean, why didn't you turn in your homework? Like, how, how come you can't do chores right? Like, how did you just drop the ball? Because to parents, it often looks like the child is purposely neglecting something. And, and kids often will, right? When you give a 13-year-old the task of, of cleaning the bathroom, 
a lot of 13 year olds are just going to like, you know, they'll give it a once over. They'll, they'll do the minimal job to get away with it because they want to get back to their, to whatever else they were doing. And parents will, you know, justifiably see a shitty job cleaning the bathroom and they'll go up to the kid and they'll say, what's wrong with you? You got to get back into the into that bathroom and, and clean it better. But for people with ADHD, they might actually go into the bathroom fully intending on, on doing a good job, but because of the way their brain works, they can't hold all the steps in their brain and they get all kind of mixed up and then they, they do what they can. And then they think, okay, I, I think I did everything I need to, or something literally distracts them and they, you know, they go into their room. They go, okay, I'm, I'm just going to take a little break in my room and I'm, I'll go back to the bathroom. And then their brain just forgets because their, their brain has a disorder called ADHD. And so you're in this constant state of people criticizing you and looking at you like, what is wrong with you? And then because you're a kid, you don't know you have ADHD. You begin to think there is something wrong with me. I'm a terrible person. And you look around at your siblings and your friends and they don't get treated that way and they don't act that way. And you just think, man, I'm a terrible human being. I'm a fuck up. And that is an internalization that is extremely destructive to people and will create a hell of a lot of sensitivity to rejection. They will grow up being extremely shy because they just have this, because they just have this generalized fear that they're a fuck up, that they're not good enough and they don't know what they're doing. And so they end up um, just overcompensating by saying, I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to avoid everything or I'm going to try to avoid everything. Well, that's a very isolating um, life and you don't get any of your needs met. And you also, um, when you do get rejected, because you've, you've been rejected so many times, it's like poking an, you know, an open wound for them and you, they can become very upset. So this rejection sensitivity can absolutely just be a part of ADHD. And I would say, yeah, it's probably universal to people that have, you know, legit ADHD. Um, but it could also just not be related to ADHD at all and could be related to borderline, um, also, you could have both. You could have ADHD and borderline. But anyway. Okay. So um, if you know more about rejection sensitive sensitivity dysphoria in terms of the research, I'd, I'd love to read stuff, but I, I couldn't find anything. Um, maybe it'll be researched more in the future. I mean, the uh, element of ADHD where people feel uh, rejected a lot and where people have low self-esteem has absolutely been um, researched but not this term, rejection sensitivity dysphoria. Um, I mean, I'm glad that ADHD people are getting that part of their um, suffering paid attention to, because that's one of the things, like, people often focus on ADHD as, like, you know, distraction, inability to stay on task. But because of that condition, there's so many ancillary suffering that are perhaps worse than the original suffering, such as this chronic rejection that they experience. And it'll often change their personality and their attachment as a result. Um, but that's only when you are, you have an ADHD child in a family where the family isn't getting proper treatment. If a family brings, if a family goes like, I think my five-year-old has ADHD and they get proper family therapy and coaching on how to help the child, uh, that child will not grow up with rejection sensitivity because the parents know how to uh, see the behavior. They'll, they'll see the behavior like, oh, the kid isn't purposely fucking up. They, just, they have a disability. People with ADHD have a legitimate disability. It is a brain disorder. 
you know, similar to having a developmental disability or a learning disability. It's, it's a legit thing. It's not just like they need to be punished more or they need to be directed to stay on task more. It's it, they can't, it's not, it's too much to ask. So when you parent them with all that in mind and, um, you don't hate on them for being who they are, then they don't generally grow up and, and they have teachers who are also on board then they generally don't grow up feeling like a fuck up all the time. All right. Well, that does it for that episode, that chapter. Let's see. How many more pages do I have left? Oh my God. Wait, am I at the end? I wait, I'm at the end. The, the only, the last, I only have one more email. And then I have this long list of deep dives that I've been wanting to work on. So if, let me, let me get to one more email. This, this email just came today. (laughs) <laughs> can you tell how excited I am? So, uh, Dr. Joel patron, Joel doctor wrote in and said, I was listening to your talk with Bob on couple therapy from a couple of years ago. You made a lot of good points. My systems family therapy training was mostly in the 1980s. I was a member of a couple and family therapy training institutes on the issue of affairs. There was a psychiatrist named Carl Whitaker who took the position that all affairs are bilateral, meaning that the if the husband's having an affair with the secretary, the wife is having an affair with the kids. Or if the wife is having an affair with the milkman, the husband is having an affair with his work. It's a useful partial truth if you look at affairs as investing energy, which would go into the relationship in other directions, but it ignores that there's much more attachment injury to a sexual affair than to someone being a workaholic or a wife being overly involved with the kids. End of email. Yeah, uh, I find it um, fascinating and awesome that uh, you knew Carl Whitaker personally or you met him. That's just, um, I'm so jealous in that way. Carl Whitaker is a founding father in family therapy um, he was similar to Virginia Satir in that he was very experiential in, in the in the moment, and he had a lot of wacky ideas. He liked to kind of shake things up. And yeah, one of the things that he would say is like, because um, a family would come in and say the the husband was upset that the wife had cheated on on him. And what Carl Whitaker would, you know, what what uh, what other what culture would say was. Well, we would blast the wife for cheating. You know, she did something evil and she needs to be put in her place. But what Carl Whitaker would say was, well, okay, sure. She had an affair with the guy at work, but husband, you've been having an affair with your fishing every weekend, or you've been having an affair with golf. And this was Carl Whitaker's way of trying to say, look, everyone is to blame for the primary problem, the primary systemic problem of a lack of attachment. And the affair is just a symptom of that lack of attachment. And so Carl Whitaker in this, you know, very brief therapy sort of way was trying to strong arm the family to realize that very quickly in in his charismatic way. But I agree with Dr. Joel that um, if, if you only have that angle, it really would hurt someone's feelings. You know, when you're cheated on, so imagine, so imagine it's true that you're in a marriage and over the span of 10 years, you get distant from your wife. And then you, um, you, know, you start getting more into work. And then, boom, all of a sudden you realize your wife has been having sex with another man for the past six months. And you're devastated. And then you go into therapy and the therapist says, well, 
you know, sure, she had an affair with the guy at work, but you've been having an affair with work itself. Um, you know, that's going to hurt pretty bad. You're going to be like, well, okay, I get that I'm culpable for the distance, but I'm not fucking culpable for the affair that she fucking had, <laughs> you know? And believe me, um, going through uh, um, infidelity recovery is intense. Um, a lot of the couples that I work with are going through infidelity recovery. And the universal thing is that the the pain that the cheated on a partner goes through is intense. And the, the also universal thing is the cheating partner always says, and research has shown this, I had no idea how much my spouse was going to be in pain. And if I had any idea how much pain I was going to put my spouse through by cheating, I would never have done it. I had no idea that they would be hurt this much. There's this denial that people go into or this sort of weird cultural ignorance that we have that when we get cheated on, it's, it is devastating to, to us. And people will uh, be, it's trauma. You'll, you'll never forget it. You know, like, um, you know, 30 years later, after you've recovered from the infidelity, the cheated on partner, the images will intrusively pop into their head of, you know, cause they, they, people who are cheated on, they can't help but to like picture what happened, you know, like what position they were in or where were they and all that kind of stuff. And it's, it's awful. It is, um, one of the worst things that can happen to people. And so, Anyway, so yeah, Carl Whitaker was both, I, th- I agree with the premise, but I would also say you can't just say that. And Carl Whitaker was kind of known for that. He, he didn't make a lot of apologies. And in his practice, he was actually a very good therapist. But for a lot of the things that he became famous for, I suspect that they're a little overblown. I, I suspect that Carl Whitaker at ground level would never just completely discount someone's feelings like that. So anyway, um. So that brings us to the end of all the emails. You know, I don't know if I've ever gotten to this point. I think, you know, occasionally I will do this. I'll do a full, you know, clearinghouse of all the emails and I'll get, you know, a lot of the ways down, but I'll never get to the end. I can't tell you the satisfaction I feel because, you know, I've been doing this podcast for almost 11 years and since the beginning, uh, you know, ever, ever increasing, I've been getting emails and too many emails to respond to. And I'm the sort of completist that I want to respond to every single email in the air. <laughs> um, now more lately, as the podcast has sort of crossed a certain threshold of popularity, that is just not possible anymore. And so um, one of the things that I'm doing is I'm actually privileging patrons of the podcast. So if you're a patron, your, your question gets saved. And if you're not, then you're not as much likely to get saved. And this is something that's, I think the listeners would really benefit from hearing. Um, I typically respond via email to all your questions. Um, also, you know, I said, please use the website, but if you don't use the website, please email me. Don't ask me questions over Patreon. Don't ask me questions on Twitter. Don't ask me questions on Facebook. Um, I don't, I don't like those interfaces for answering complicated questions. So just email me. It's the, it's the best way. In fact, people will ask me questions on Patreon, the messaging service, and I'll say, email me. Don't, don't, you know, I won't even respond. I'll just be like, you need to email me. Or sometimes people will contact me through like my practice Facebook page and they'll ask me a question. I'm just like, why are you here? You know, just email me. So, um, so yeah. 
but yeah, I, I can't answer every question. Um, shorter questions are easier, honestly. Um, sometimes people have these really long questions and I find that, um, it's hard for me to read those. So, um, if you want a response from me, like try to be concise and try to understand that I get a lot of questions. And if you write like pages and pages of detail, um, there's this conflict I go through because I want to care and I want to read it. But I also realize that I only have so many hours in the day. And if I read every single long email, um, I, I wouldn't be able to do the rest of my work, you know? And so, um, sometimes now the other thing is, is what I'll do <clears throat> like with the OCD person above that I talked about, I asked her for more detail. She gave me a little bit of detail and then I was like, huh, that's interesting. I, you know, I don't know if I've ever um, talked with someone directly with that condition. Can you give me some more detail? So if I need more detail, I'll ask for it. But um, so maybe just start with um, something that's shorter. Um, I always appreciate getting emails. Uh, I do this podcast uh, primarily to have connection with you. Um, I, if you weren't out there and if you weren't emailing me or at least, you know, commenting on things, um, I probably would have given this up a long time ago. Um, you know, seeing a number like a download number, like, oh, you know, 5,000 people listen to this episode. Um, that's like too amorphous. Uh, it's so much more real when someone emails and said, hey, I listened to your episode today. And even more real when you come to the 11th anniversary show and I see you face to face. I, I can't emphasize that enough. When I actually meet listeners face to face, in fact, some of the emails that I listened today, I actually met you face to face. I remember meeting you at, at previous events. There is something just profoundly meaningful. Me and Umberto, after our first live show in which we met listeners really for the first time, people flew from all over the world, from, from Mexico, from Ireland, from California, from Maryland, and, you know, from all over the, all over the United States and, and, you know, other places. And it was amazing. It, it was like, oh my God, you know, I finally, because some people I'd been corresponding with a lot, but what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say is that this podcast is not a one-way street. And if I didn't feel as though it was you know, meaningful to people. And if I wasn't having some kind of back and forth with people, uh, I wouldn't be doing it. Like I said, um, I have always been that sort of way. Like when I started the podcast, I could have done like the vast majority of other podcasters and just did it, did it by myself. I could have started psychology and Seattle by myself, but that was like completely not on the table. I would, I would never, I was like, I'm never going to do this on my own. I, I don't want to do it on my own. I could do it on my own, but I don't, I don't want to. So I got my good friends, Lita and Umberto, who I hung out with all the time anyway. And I said, Hey, let's start a podcast together. And so it's always been that way for me. I want attachment with other human beings because I deserve it. And so do you. So take care of yourself also because you deserve it. <laughs>